0: Hello and welcome to this first episode of 2022 from iGaming FM, the online betting and gaming sector's talk radio show. Happy New Year to you. I hope, we hope, producer Ellie and I, that you had a great Christmas. And whether you celebrate Christmas or not, hope you got some well deserved rest and got ready for the long, cold slog that is January. It might be cold in the UK at least, but there is no ice, at least not for now. After that manic Q4 of seemingly weekly events, the diary has been largely cleared for the first three months of the new year. Ice is in mid-April, the new iGaming Next event in New York has jumped from March to mid-May, and just this week SBC confirmed that the Malta-based Casino Beat Summit will now take place at the end of May. This presents a great opportunity to break up the office slog with some chat about the iGaming sector. So to episode 8. Later on, our Matt Chambers speaks with Enrico Bradamante about his role at Paraplay and prospects for Latam Market in particular. David Copeland of Betting Jobs is in conversation with Robin Hutchison, offering an overview of the fast-moving iGaming recruitment market. But first up, I spoke with Andreas Saliba, Head of Talent and Organisational Development at Hero Gaming, about, among other things, employer branding and the recent Café Rocks announcement that it would be offering staff unlimited paid leave. All of that inside 30 minutes or so. Andrea, thanks for joining me and thanks for being part of our iGaming FM project. You're Head of Talent and Organisational Development at Hero Gaming. A few things I've noticed on LinkedIn, on social media, and some of them are kind of New Year things. They're about employer branding and employee needs. And I just wanted to ask you about that, really. Is employer branding now, as we're going to 2022 in the iGaming sector, is it more important than ever? And if so, what role has the pandemic played in that, given that a lot more people are now working at home? Employer branding has always been something very important to focus on because it
1: really externalizes as well what the company is, is doing externally on different platforms. But I really believe that the employer branding side of things really starts internally. So you need to really reflect on what you're doing internally uh, from an internal point of view and then really externalize the main points that you think can add value as well. Same to even attract candidates and really show what you're doing out there in, in that aspect. But branding was always a lot of importance at Hero and also within the gaming industry at a stretch, I think it's something that, especially in, in the Maltese landscape, that is being done very well. There's an aspect that we need to focus on when it comes to employer branding is really attracting the right talent in the right way. So, really externalizing what you want to, to focus on and attract in that aspect.
0: In terms of attracting the right employees, have their needs changed in the last few years, would you say? I sense that employees have higher expectations of their employers now in terms of flexibility, not simply working from home, but beyond that, other benefits as well. And how are employers meeting those needs? How have you responded to that?
1: The pandemic has
0: changed the way that we work. We've always had a lot of flexibility within Hero Gaming.
1: That was something that we always believed in. But since the pandemic hit and practically everyone went to working fully remotely, we've seen a shift to added flexibility. And then we've also adopted the hybrid model. And by doing that as well, we've seen more employer branding in terms of the, the initiatives that we're doing related to, to hybrid work and, and added flexibility. What I think we need to keep in mind when it comes to the lawyer branding point of view is really externalizing aspects that can add value to the operations of what you're doing. So it's not just initiatives to just attract people, but really give honest and and true feedback of how you're building the employer branding side and and what you can offer in terms of an employer value proposition to your current employees, but also future employees who want to join your organization.
0: Something that sparked my interest in this was the Cafe Rocks announcement last week or the week before about now offering unlimited paid leave. I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, I feel that the Cafe Rox approach
1: is something that is very futuristic. It's something which I feel that we will see more of. It's something that at Hero we have looked at, it's something even through our case studies there are companies in Silicon Valley and America that have already adopted that approach. So definitely it's something to follow and see how, how that works out. From the hero perspective, we've always monitored leave. So we've never been too rigid on the balance, but really monitored, understood how people are taking leave, how they're also flexible across and how they work. But we've also added benefits into our absence from, from work policies around extended sick leave, extended leave around study leave, holiday leave, extended maternity leave, extended paternity leave. So these are all things that we've already looked into. And from our point of view, really monitor leave balances and the stage in our organization have really young, had different approach. You have people who need to encourage to take leave. It's, they find it difficult to take the legal balance of leave that they need to take. In our uh, types of organizations, even the size of organizations that we are, we're... Um 140 plus employees at Hero. Many of us are, and we're specialists in what we do. So we know that this is our task; it's what we need to do, and it's in our responsibility to know how to, to achieve that goal and to deliver on that goal that has been set on the team or you as an individual. So really, masters of our own time, and that is a mindset that you need to adopt. And I think once you've aligned and ensured that mindset and culture is the same across organization, then being in a position to take the approach that Café Rocks did and
0: test it out. It's really interesting what you say about, first and foremost, if you make employees masters of their own time, then the Café Rocks policy seems less important because you've created masters of their own time who are very serious about their responsibilities at work and as and when they do them. And that's quite a mature... Approach. Companies mature, sectors mature, our attitudes evolve. And I wonder how that applies to the more junior people coming in, maybe from school or from university or people who are in their early 20s, perhaps, who maybe now are professionals who have no experience of a traditional, in inverted commas, work day. It's a risk, is it not? There's always a risk
1: when you implement some great benefits, some added flexibility and, and all that, those benefits which are, are perks in itself. But I really feel that once you have the right culture, the right mindset, the right goal setting, that the strategy is very clear, this that transparency and communication across the organization. I think once you join an organization and you see people working to that high level of work ethic with that added flexibility but still receiving the results, then I think the risk is very minimal there. When someone joins we want them to really live the culture of the company and they really need to look at other people and mentors, people they look up to. And that is where and then you really need to, to channel and promote these sort of initiatives through your key employees, your, your, your mentors, your leaders within the business. And they will really and then make a, a policy, best practice, successful within, within your organization.
0: I suppose that adds emphasis to the recruitment process. If you are bringing the right people in, and, and naturally we all wish to and intend to bring the right people in, but it can't always be guaranteed. But if you do and you have a cultural alignment, then as you have just said, then really there, there shouldn't be a problem because you have the right fit. As someone who is involved in those processes and that those individuals as they join the company, are we working harder on cultural fits, would you say? Is personal interest and personal character perhaps more important than it was when someone used to come into an office and and sit and be interviewed by a senior manager? First of all, we've
1: shifted a lot of all our interviews to to remote. That's something that's changed a lot with the, the pandemic, I would say. Like now we're ready to have all interviews of the first round online. Before we would say like as much as possible, let's get them over to the office. That has changed as well. We've always had competency based interviewing, we have our heroic competencies, which is a, which are aligned to our culture. So that is, has always been central to it all. But what we've done as well to see more of throughout the pandemic is that the AI gaming industry was actually growing and striving. So we've also had an increase in recruitment and talent acquisition throughout the pandemic. It was something which was maybe quite unique to our Organizations which are tech, are gaming, but tied to that, w- w- there's always an element of guessing when you're recruiting. So you try to put in the right processes. You have psychometric testing, language testing. You have customer support, tech testing, and, and really making sure you have all the right things in the right place. But there's that element of guessing, which we are mindful of. As much as we, we try our best to recruit the right, and then sometimes there are um, those one-offs which really don't fit fit our culture. But what we've also done in, over the, the past year, and we reality back to look in, in a retrospect, is that we really improved our whole onboarding process. So we always had that structured onboarding. We send out the hire packet, and everything that you are expected to know and a schedule before sort of the basic like onboarding. You receive also your welcome pack, things set out on host, so on and with everyone. But what we've also done is added different checkpoints throughout. The employee experience and journey within the first six months. We have a post onboarding check in after six weeks, and then you have another culture and learning and development check in to make sure that you really have the right aspects. Then you have a four month 360 and really. So, you get also feedback from your manager, from your mentor, and from someone within your team and someone who you work closely with cross functionally. So, I've added these elements to really make sure that we are, we do have the right culture fit and we do have the right people in the right roles.
0: I suppose those structural changes that you mentioned there, that leans on the part of your title that says organizational development, I suppose. And the other thing I was going to ask you is how the company responds to having a different workforce, a different cultural. DNA. The whole, the infrastructure has completely changed and how you manage and, and lead people. And you've talked about onboarding then, and that leans itself into the change in the line management structure and the line management relationship, because you're not present with the person hardly ever. In terms of leading businesses and kind of vision and values, mission, the stuff that comes from the top down, do you have to create the channels to reach into people's homes now? I mean, is that something that you can't rely on posters on the wall anymore? I mean, have you had to make changes there to make sure that these people do feel part of not just an engaging culture, but part of Hero and the Hero identity? That's a challenge that we're aware of and that we're really gearing up to look into and
1: focus on more in in 2022 as well, because at Hero, we've adopted a a hybrid setup. So we have an office in and we have an office in Sweden as well, tied into quite a few now actually remote heroes based across the world. So we need to factor in the hybrid aspect, but also touch of remote when it comes to remote heroes. So what we've seen is that, unfortunately, due to the pandemic and variants coming out, that we haven't really gotten to test fully the hybrid model. So the hybrid model in reality, the idea that we have in mind is having that flexibility and ownership on, on our leaders and managers to really decide, listen, I need my team to be in the office two times a week, and the other three days they can decide to work from home as they wish. So unfortunately, we haven't seen that fully. We've seen elements of it coming, but we haven't seen that fully. And as a result of that, of course, in three years, where culture changes, so our, our values are love, their and win. What do love, their and win mean today? So there's uh, a lot of focus that we need to do on uh, understanding what each value means for each team and within the organization today. And tied to that, we're also looking into different tools and, and initiatives to get people together. Let's plan company meetups once a year. And then team meetups, at least they have different teams located in different locations, you need to meet twice a year. But then also getting the whole company together with, with tools like donuts and, and different tools that can really help that collaboration and make people even meet on a social level together apart from all the tech tools that have become a mainstay now and how we operate like having a project management tool like click up on monday boards and slack or teams you know all, all those those tools which have really now become really central to how we work and operate in, in a digital and remote world and i think one thing that really ties in here is that if you have a hybrid setup or, or not your mindset has to be remote nowadays you need to have that remote mindset
0: Next up, Robin chats to David Copeland, owner at Betting Jobs. Robin sets it up nicely, so I'll hand over to him.
2: So I'm joined now by David Copeland, who's owner of Betting Jobs, a well-known betting and gaming recruitment consultancy. David, you've been in the industry almost as long, if not longer, than Square in the Air, and I'm guessing in that time you've seen plenty of change. What for you remains the same? From day one, and what has changed in that intervening period?
3: Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me on. If we look back 20 years, the world was a different place, and it certainly was different from a recruitment perspective. The reason why we started the company there were there were no real recruiters out there. The only place you would go and look for a job was the racing post on a Saturday. Back in the days, there might be a dozen pages of adverts for working at greyhounds and the horses, etc. And there was the odd advert emerging for places like Blue Square. If you remember those guys, I do indeed. Yeah sports traders they they became jobs that people were starting to sort of become more aware of so I had a background in recruitment working in technology recruitment I spent a, a few years in London post graduating and decided that the idea for my business would be to create a job board an online resource for the industry so things changed quite dramatically after that we spent a few months building out the job board and then as the industry grew so quickly clients were asking if we could help them provide more of a consultancy service blah 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 20 years time here we are we're working in multiple different countries and several different offices and loads of staff so really quite different but what stayed the same is people we're in the people business people's drivers remain the same and that tends to be that they need to have a job in order to earn some money to provide for their family in order to put food on the table and to develop a quality of lifestyle they also remain ambitious and that's a big driver for people in terms of how they look at their own career, So
2: people often see forgive me for saying so recruitment consultants as a bit of a necessary evil i.e. you need staff in but you don't really want to have to deal with a recruitment consultant if you don't have to now gambling doesn't have the best reputation either is that like a marriage made in hell recruitment consultancy within
3: gambling oh i had no idea of this uh, image problem that uh, <laughs> the recruiters had uh, what we needed really to get some good pr people on board and try and uh... <laughs> indeed if only you knew some <laughs> yeah if you could recommend some that would be great i think if you look at that i mean obviously it's, it's something that's an interesting question isn't it we're dealing with people and that's candidates job seekers and that's the clients. We're dealing with people at one of the most stressful times of their life. I don't think there's anything more stressful than being out of work. Certainly very stressful even being in work and looking for a new role. And something that people really don't sort of have an idea on is the amount of stress that a hiring manager has. Often the reason for making the hire is because you're understaffed at work. You're probably having to do the, the work of two people already. If you can't make that hire to help yourself out, then life just gets worse and worse. So look, we appreciate that. We know that people are under a lot of pressure and we're happy if people want to vent towards us. And if we're the people that take a little bit of the brunt of that, that's fine. But what we try and do is we try and help alleviate that pressure and that stress out people's lives so if you look at a recruiter as someone who's there to actually help and not someone who's there just to take a fee it changes the look of the relationship and you've actually find that you've got a friend and you've got a helper rather than someone who's oh you know they're just causing havoc and look how much they charge and they're trying to headhunt my best employee and that's obviously an unhealthy way to have the relationship but that's experience and a lot of recruiters maybe don't have that experience they haven't seen it we could go on to talk about how recruiters themselves are remunerated by their own employers and you know maybe that would help to give some insight. Site, there's definitely a way to work with recruiters to get the best out of them, and I'm happy to help you understand that more.
2: We've all had experiences with recruiters, both good and bad, and one of the things that I remember talking to you about is that companies don't necessarily know how to use a recruiter, and you were sort of alluding to that towards the back end of your answer there, but what can companies do? to help themselves, to help you, to help them?
3: If I was a client and I were working with a recruitment consultancy, here's some points, not necessarily in a specific order, but here's some points that I would consider. Number one, how is the person who I'm dealing with, how are they motivated? How are they remunerated? And what does it look like behind the scenes in the office? Recruiters aren't working just with one client. That's the reality. So, in a company like Betting Jobs, and we would be one of the largest recruiters within this space, we may be working last year. If I think about it, we worked with maybe three hundred different clients over 2021, and we have around 20 recruiters. Now, not every client is working with every recruiter at the same time, but each recruiter could have five, maybe ten clients sitting on their desk at one time. So, why are you working on a certain role for a certain client, and you're not working on a certain role? For another client, or are you working on both roles at the same time for both clients? How's the recruiter paid? They're paid a basic salary and then they're paid a commission. And they get commission if they successfully fill a role and the candidate successfully starts. Knowing that, I'd be speaking to the recruiter and I'd be saying, Well, I'd like you to get to a position where you can successfully fill the role with my company so that we can pay you a fee and you can get your commission. And I think every recruiter would say, Well, that'd be great, Robin. How are we going to do that? And you would say, Well, I'll tell you what, what would be a bad situation for you as a recruiter? And the recruiter would say, Well, a bad situation, Robin, would be If I sent you a CV and you never replied, and then if I sent you another CV and you still didn't reply, and we did that for a week and you never replied, how do you feel that would motivate the recruiter to believing that they were ever going to receive a successful fee? Feel free to answer that one. No, no, that makes sense. I get it. I get it. (laughs) You get it? You get it. So let's reply. And, you know, the reply doesn't always need to be a favorable reply. Sometimes a negative reply can be just as good. That is not the right type of person because X, Y, and Z. Therefore, the right type of person has got, you know, A, B, and C. Great answer. Completely helps me in my hunt for the right candidate for your company. Working together is key and making that recruiter feel as if the work they go and do is actually going to be rewarded in some way by some type of feedback or some type of reaction. And I think if you do that, then I think rarely we have searches that are so difficult that we can't find a company the right person for them and we can end it ends in a handshake everyone's delighted the person starts pressure's taken off and we all move forward and then we have repeat business we have happy clients unhappy clients they just look like people who don't want to receive any guidance they don't want to give any feedback and they just always believe that they're right and we're idiots that would be what an unhappy client tends to look like and you're in the services business Robin not all clients are perfect is that a fair comment to say? Well all of Square in the Airs are but yes I I hear what you're saying no look it's Joking aside, the
2: interesting thing is, and, and, and we see this on a, on a regular basis agencies, whether it's a recruitment consultant or whether it's a PR agencies, are often only as good as their brief. And if someone can really narrow down what they want, what they want to achieve with the PR or the marketing we're doing, with the recruitment that they're doing with you, what they're looking for, who they're looking for, is really important for us because it gives us that guidance to be able to narrow down, to hone in, to do all the stuff that they want done. And ultimately, the more information you can get at the start of the conversation the better it'll be at the end of the conversation
3: wholeheartedly agree yeah i think the brief the brief really is everything isn't it tell people why you're hiring we're hiring this person because we want to build this type of product and that product is going to help us penetrate in that type of market and it's going to help us make a little bit more money because of x y or z the recruiter will understand that they'll appreciate that and they might also get them thinking about previous situations where someone a candidate has performed that type of task and achieved that type of goal and target just communicate we love communicating don't we robin i mean you're a communicator a lot of people don't really like communicating that just isn't in their being I guess Um, so maybe they're not the best person to be the point person for that client maybe they should pass the role on to someone else who is because whoever is the point person for the client needs to be that great communicator
2: Let's talk now about various parts of the industry. I mean, I mean, geographical parts of the industry. Certain industry hubs, Malta, I'm looking at you here, have a reputation for being a quite promiscuous employment market, as it was once described to me. I'm guessing as a recruitment consultant, that's music to your ears. But how do you help HR departments look at retention as much as acquisition?
3: You're coming at me with the hard questions, Robin. I feel like every sentence could be the Gerald Ratner moment, couldn't it? I just feel like (laughs) tripwires all over the place. I mean, I remember going to Malta back in the early 2000s. It was really quite a different place. Very few clients and operators out there. We took an office space out there, a very small office space. We took the whiteboard and we started to write down the name of all the operators or suppliers that were on the island. And I don't think we got past maybe 25 or 30. There'd be thousands now. There'd be hundreds of operators and much larger ecosystem. But what's interesting is that the drive that took people to want to go and live and work in Malta 20 years ago are probably quite similar to the drivers today and that's number one is probably the weather. A large amount of northern Europeans decided it'd be far better going to work in a nice warm climate than it would be to stay in Scotland where it's dark and wet and I can't blame them. So sometimes you think to yourself are people there because they're desperate? work for that company or are people just there because it's nice and warm and obviously you get your blend and as the more malta developed you got that blend and your good actors happened your bad actors happened there's huge and vast turnovers of of people just on the island in general people would come over they would i mean it's a huge hub for learning english so people would come they would learn some english they would get a job in customer services and they might stay for six months and sometimes we stay for five years has that changed i'm not sure it's changed that much what can clients do though i mean i think you can you just have to treat people on an individual basis and you have to understand what motivates them and you have to try and do the best by people. But you can't be an every employer for every person. I just don't think that's the case. I think that's a world that just doesn't exist.
2: That's Malta. Let's talk about other markets and specifically the emerging markets. The industry as we've talked about in the last 20 years, has changed irreparably. And we're seeing the States, we're seeing Latin, we're seeing Africa changing. Are there individual differences in those markets in terms of how you recruit? Are you looking into those markets at betting jobs yourselves? What's sort of next, really, when it comes to recruitment within this industry?
3: Everything changes and then nothing changes. Back in the day, I suppose Malta's the example again, or Jib's the example again. People would say, well, you know, we want to go online and we want to acquire customers. We want people with experience. There is no market there. There are no people with experience. So you have to go into parallel markets. Parallel markets back in the day might have been a little bit of online travel or credit card industry anything where people were sort of doing a little bit online or with large volumes of people and large amounts of data you know so looking at the states for example just now very difficult to get visas for anyone who's a non-US it's all about the parallel industries it's a huge challenge for them just now the cost of hiring out in the US is far higher than the cost of hiring out in Europe you know you could write down a list of reasons and you could say well actually there's like nine reasons why maybe better to hire someone with experience from a different part of the world and then the roadblock is always the visa it's always the visa what did we see recently with the score and Penn National now they're building the trading team out in Jib when initially they wanted to build that trading team in Toronto a city in the US. So what people want to do and what people end up doing sometimes two different things but when it becomes a government reason then it's very difficult to overcome. You know Africa's the same you know different stuff happening in Africa. Sometimes it can be we need French speakers with gambling knowledge. Well that's a little bit easier. We can go to France and we can find some French speakers with some gambling knowledge and we can relocate but then the relocation can be a challenge. What you get on one side sometimes you have to give on the other. The best Recruiters, and I don't mean us as an agency, I mean the best companies are the most flexible in their thoughts. I've sat in many a boardroom with a client. This is absolutely what we must do. We must have X, Y, or Z. And then you sort of push back on that and say, X, Y, or Z doesn't actually exist. Would you have this? Well, let's talk about it. I'm not asking you to say yes straight away, but let's talk about it. And I think you just need to talk with people. And sometimes as an agency, We don't want to push our experience on people, but we do have a lot of experience. We could probably tell you for hours and hours and hours about the reasons why companies have failed. And I can tell you about the successful companies and why they've succeeded from a human capital perspective, if nothing else. Another thing that I always find strange is the amount of CEOs, not too many, thankfully, but some CEOs that seem to think that it's their job to be the full-time recruiter and they need to be on LinkedIn and they need to be posting and posting and posting. And I think if you're the CEO of a company, surely you've got bigger events to focus on than the recruitment Don't be afraid to outsource. We're not bad people.
0: Enrico Bradamante is a well-known figure in the iGaming sector, not least as founder of iGen and also for his five years plus at NetEnt in Malta. Enrico is now CCO at Paraplay, a role he discusses here with Squaring the Air's Matt Chambers.
4: Hi Enrico, you were a very experienced, well-known figure in the industry. What was it about Paraplay and the stage of development the company is in that made it a good fit for you to join?
5: Good afternoon. Good morning, Matt. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is uh, Enrico and I've joined PariPlay one month ago, so it's still very, very recent. What I love and what excites me about PariPlay is the moment that I'm joining and the fact that we are an aggregator. In fact, we are the leading aggregator present in many different regulated markets. And being an aggregator gives us a fantastic vantage point, a fantastic perspective on the entire industry, both from an operator's perspective, as well from a vendor's, from a supplier perspective. So I find this very exciting. And uh, PariPlay is the company that is 10 years old now, has been accelerating, hyper-growing compared to the, the rest of the market. And it's now at a stage where the growth that we're having needs to scale even more from an organization perspective. So I'm very excited to join Adrian and the team at this moment in time and to bring my experience to make a difference and allow PariPlay to continue to grow at the rate that it has shown in these last few years.
4: How have you found it so far working under the umbrella of Aspire Global? What advantages has this relationship presented for the progress of PariPlay?
5: Aspire Global is a fantastic group company However, the entities that are under the Aspire Global group are operating very independently. In fact, PariPlay itself has its own brand, is its own entity, and we operate in different markets and in different areas of the value chain. So there are great synergies and we leverage the synergies. But what Aspire Global's philosophy with PariPlay and with B2Bet is to let the companies continue to have their own brand identity, their own commercial focuses, their own product focuses, and allow to develop the synergies where it makes commercial and product sense.
4: Looking specifically at LATAM, you're relatively new to the market, but you've made a number of recent moves there. What is the potential in the region for both aggregation platforms and game studios?
5: Latin America is a great opportunity for PariPlay and for the market industry in general. There are a number of countries that have already regulated and there are others that are in the process of regulating. As such, it is a relatively exciting and potentially very big growth market for anyone. And we at PariPlay have identified it as being a strategic market where we are putting a specific commercial focus and product focus. We have hired, a LATAM market specialist that has started with us about a month ago. His name is Jorge, and we are creating a specific package of content, of game content, from selected suppliers that we have in our portfolio. We have over 80 suppliers of content, and we are going to create this package that has both tier one suppliers with tier one content, but also, and this is something that the aggregators like Pariplay can really bring, some local suppliers, some suppliers of, for example, land-based content that is very popular in those markets, in those territories, but that are not necessarily known internationally by the big global companies. This flexibility, the technical flexibility and the commercial flexibility that we bring with our model, in addition to certification and the licenses that, uh, that we have and the ones that we will obtain, puts play in a great position to develop the market further.
4: Many eyes are on Brazil waiting for regulation there to finally be implemented. And the same is also true of many other countries other than Colombia. Will regulation in the LATAM region continue to roll out very slowly? Or do you think that once major regions start to commit, others will quickly follow?
5: I hope that the regulation in general will happen more quickly. I think this is everybody's desire and dream, be that South America or North America. And and by the way, we have a similar focus in, in North America as well as a company. Now, with regards to Brazil, this has been in the pipeline for a while. I don't expect it to create a kind of a snowball effect. I think every country has its own journey. And I think very similarly to what happened in, in Europe and what is happening in the U- United States, every state or every country has their own journey, their own political journey, and they will be eventually introducing regulation when the time is right for them. I don't expect regulation in Brazil to have a snowball effect that will then open the floodgates. I think it will be a progressive. And again, if you look at Europe and you draw parallels, important countries such as the Netherlands or or Germany are just regulating now, probably 10 years after countries like Italy regulate. uh, first ones. It will take some time, this is my expectation, but of course I hope that it will happen quickly.
4: Are LATAM markets generally going to be easier to enter than US states for providers such as PariPlay, given that operators there might not have the resources to develop their own proprietary technologies?
5: Potentially, yes. Also, the fact that one can enter with a dot-com offering in Latin America presently, whilst this was really not possible in the U.S., I think this is making the Latin America potentially a, a faster uh, adoption or a faster-growing market. The U.S. Is, is mighty, of course, and there is a lot of focus on, on the U.S. and the various states and when they will regulate. But in, certainly, the fact is we have, as, as Play a technology stack that is is modern, that is proven, that is regulated, is going to allow the companies that are in in Latin America with a ready-made technical solution. And then they have always the choice whether they prefer to develop their own technology stack and be more independent or to rely on aggregators or aggregator to complement the direct deals that they might do with the tier one suppliers. I expect it to be a a mix and maybe to start with a company like PariPlay for their entire product offering, because we can start very quickly. And eventually, as they grow and the business progresses and advances, then I think this is the inevitable journey that some of these larger operators will end up doing some direct deals with the larger tier one vendors. But we have fulfilled our role in the value chain and done some good business for everyone
0: thanks again to all contributors to this episode to Andrea David and Enrico as well as to Matt and Robin for asking the questions The next episode was going to be our Ice special, but instead join us next time for what we are imaginatively calling Episode 9, when I'll ask Carolina Peltz about her Beyond Play adventure and why people keep saying her name incorrectly. We also hear from Aspire Global's Quincy Raven, who dives deep into the US market with Ian Donegan. Until then, enjoy not going to any events, and stay warm, and as always, thanks for listening.